Thanks for tuning in today to Solid Ground Church. We hope that this is uplifting for you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If we can be a help at all, please visit us on the web at solidground.church. Now, let's get to today's message. We are in the series right now called In the Beginning. And uh, what we're doing is we're going through the book of Genesis, uh, the whole thing. We're going to be in Genesis for a while. Originally, my plan was to be in it up till Easter. But I don't know. We might, we might go longer than that. Who knows? We'll, we'll just we'll spend some time in Genesis because there's a lot there uh, for us to cover. If you haven't joined us, um, let me just kind of get us all on the same page where we've been thus far. So what we've done is we've looked at the creation story. Right, And we looked at how God created the heavens and the earth, and in week one, we said there basically there are three things that we want you to know, three teachings that are present in the creation story in Genesis 1. Uh, number one, we learned about who God is. We learned that God is the great king of creation, that he has no rival, and that he's invested in us, which leads us to the next thing, that we learn who we are. We learn that we have been made, male and female, we've been made in the image of God. And what this means is that we have been entrusted care of creation. That when God created our first parents, he made them under shepherds. He, he, he made them to rule for him. They were basically the middle management. He's the owner. They're the managers of creation. And we learned that God created the earth and it was good. That there was no suffering. There was no sickness. There was no death. There was no disease. It was good. It was teeming with life. But then we learned that our first parents rebelled. And what they wanted to do was rule it for themselves. They wanted to be God. And when they did that, when they like, committed this treason, when they turned against God, because they were entrusted the care of creation, creation broke, right? And so as a result, sin, sickness, suffering, death all entered into the world and everything that we knew was fundamentally altered because this great commission affected everything. Maybe you'll remember in Genesis 1, here's what the commission of God to our first parents was. It says, God blessed them, talking about man and woman, and said to them, be fruitful, and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, okay, like fill the earth, procreate, rule over the animals, subdue the earth. And then this was all affected. Now, remember this promise. And I've done this before in the series, but I just want to do a favor. Remember that promise. Remember that commission, okay? I want you to take it, stick it in your pocket. All right, because we're coming back to it today. Okay, but... But so we found, we found, okay, so they rebel. And then last week we looked at how this, this sort of sin thing, what it does, it's, it's like a, a snowball going down the side of a mountain. It's just picking up and it's getting bigger, right? So the very next thing that happens is murder and there's jealousy and there's, there's evil starting to enter the world more so. And today what we're going to see is, is how it just, it just exponentially multiplies because today we're going to look at the story of Noah. Oh, man. How many of you ever, hands up if you've ever read the story of Noah, heard the story of Noah, Noah and the ark and the animals? Yeah, you remember, like, if you, went, if you grew up in church like I did, there's a lot of flannel graphs involved, right? Like, like just, like, felt stuck on a board. You're like, cool, wow, you know, just elephants, neat. Um, now, before we, go, before we go any further, I, I just want to acknowledge something. Um, because one, one of the things that, that we love is that some of you who are here today, uh, you're here because a, a friend or family member brought you, and we're glad you're here, but, but you wouldn't necessarily classify yourself as a Christian or person of faith. We'd love that. Please keep coming. You do not have to agree with us to be with us. But listen, I want you to acknowledge that when it comes to the flood, this is one of these stories where, where we can maybe divide a little bit, and, and, and the sort of popular thought um, in secular society and out there is this idea of, like, isn't it kind of immature to believe in a flood? Like, is it a little bit like naive to believe like, like, that God like, flooded the heavens and the earth and everything was wiped out? Like, that, that sounds more like a fairy tale than any kind of history. So why in the world would you believe that? Now, again, you don't have to agree with me today, but I, I would just say this. If you're like, do you really believe 
in a global flood? I would say, yeah, I do, and you should too, and here's why. Because when you look at the pages of history, um, and, and you look at, you, you have the ancient Near East where the, where the Genesis story comes from, but you also have in the ancient Near East all these different pagan religions and, and, and non-pagan, but just like you have all these different worldviews, all these different kingdoms, all these different people who disagree about life and the nature of life, okay? And you've got all these different people accounting for the origins of the earth. You've got all these different history stories. Something to know is that the Noah story in Genesis is not the only flood story from the ancient Near East. Most ancient religions or ancient historical tellings, depending on how you read their writings, account for some kind of flood. Most of them tell a story of the earth as they know and everything being washed away and everything being flooded and destroyed and a mythical figure, a man of faith arising, like foreseeing it, building an ark, filling it with animals, or in some stories the ark is like a round thing, but basically a big boat filling it with animals and surviving the flood and, and repopulating the earth. This is a story that everybody from that time period seems to believe in, although they'll change the names and details. So for instance, like for us, we'll, we'll look at why God floods in our stories, but for some, it's like kind of silly. It's like, well, you know, like the gods were in the heavens and the earth was too noisy and they're like, quiet down, and they flooded and killed everybody. But, 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 but everybody kind of had this belief that there was a flood. Now, here's why this is important. If you have many different groups of people who don't agree on anything, recalling a story and treating it as fact, but interpreting it in completely different ways, that should testify to the authenticity of the story. Because basically what it means is you've got all these people that nobody questioned if an event happened or not, but they were all trying to make sense of it. You see? So like, if you have all these different people who aren't agreeing about anything, but they're like, okay, it was our guy. No, it was our guy. And, and well, here's what, no, this is what happened. But nobody questions if there was a flood. What that tells you is that there was an event close enough to when they lived that nobody questioned whether or not it happened. It was too recent. It was too real to them. So what they were trying to do was make sense of it within their own worldviews. That's a really good reason to believe in a flood, the existence of other flood stories. Now, for me, that, that's a reason. It's not the reason. Here's the reason that I believe in, and I, I come back to this for, for a lot of Bible stories, and, and, and again, you don't have to agree with me here, but, but the, the, like the biggest reason why I believe in a flood is because Jesus, who I believe accurately predicted his own death and resurrection, I think the history is really good for that, um, treated it like it was real. And anytime you've got somebody who can accurately predict their own death and resurrection and then pull it off, I go with what they say about how things went down, all right? And so, you know, if you can do that, I'll go with you. But, but listen, for, for now, I'm going with Jesus because he did that. That tells me he's got a knowledge that I don't got. So, so at the end of the day, the reason I really, really believe this is because Jesus treated it like it was real. Okay, now, all that said, all that said, what we've seen with, with the, the, the slaying of, of Cain and Abel, now we're going to watch as sin gets worse and worse and worse in the story. And we're going to watch God's response to it. So in Genesis 6, starting in verse 5, it says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This, this sin thing, like an airborne virus, has just infected everyone. And now they're going internal in everything that they do. There's this, this evil to it, okay? It continues, it continues. The Lord, and look at this next line, guys. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And his heart was deeply troubled. If you've got a perfect, holy, loving God, and he's looking at how he had this good creation, and seeing what it is now from 
what it was when he created it. It breaks his heart. And, and the word that we translate here as um, deeply troubled, it's the Hebrew word nakam, um, and it, it usually describes like a heartbreaking repentance. Like when somebody, like if, if they look at their actions, they feel like just such remorse, they decide to turn away from it. That's the same word here. And what we're finding is like people's actions have so wounded the heart of God that he's actually looking at me, I wish I hadn't done that. Now, have we ever for a moment like, ever pictured God in this regard? Because most of us, when we think about God, we think of him as sort of this like divine dispenser in the clouds, right? Where, where you know, like we pray and it's almost like pulling a lever and he drops something down for us. But have you ever considered that God has feelings? Have you ever considered that God has personhood? I mean, we're, we're made to reflect his nature. It would make sense that God would experience love, that he would experience heartbreak, that he would experience all these, these different types of emotion in reaction to us. It's not him being petty. It's him being a person. And, and let's just think about this. In our actions, because for how many of us, that's not how we factor into our decisions. We don't go, like, listen, if I do that, would that wound the heart of God? It's how will that go for me if I do it? Will I get caught? Will, will I benefit or not? But, but let's, let's just see in, in God's actions. You're like, he's, he's grieving this. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Like, don't raise your hands, but how many of you, um, like to understand the, the level of hurt here, how many of you have ever had a relationship with somebody that was so toxic that after it ended, you, you caught yourself wishing you had never met them to begin with? Like, it takes a lot, right? Some of you, like, you get that. You're like, like, ah, oh, that's where he is right now. That's where he is right now. And so verse 7 says, the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. Now let's pause here too. Um, because I know as Westerners, um, we have a hard time with the idea of God's judgment or wrath or anything like this, right? Like we love, we love stories of God's love. We love stories of God's forgiveness. But the idea of like, like God bringing vengeance on the earth, God bringing any kind of like, like smiting or anything like that, to us, that, that doesn't appeal and, and that kind of feels immature a little bit. And so we look at this like, man, how petty. Like, like why don't he just let them do their own thing? Um, l- let's understand something about God, that, hi- that, his, that his justice is not divorced from his love. In fact, if God is not just, if God does not punish sin, I would argue he's not really loving because if he's just kind of like allowing things to, to continue forever, that, there's no love in that. Like love protects, love guards, love makes it so there's consequences to actions. But something to note is that the level of patience here, okay? Um, nowhere else in scripture do we find a narrative where God's like, man, I, I wish I had never made people. And we never find the story again. Like, in fact, at the end of the story, God says, I'll never flood the earth like this again. But we don't find God's reaction to sin typically in this sort of cataclysmic, world-ending way. And here's why this is important, because we have to understand that the patience and mercy of God are not short. He's not short-tempered. He's not like just ready like, to blow a fuse or something like that. Like, there's a level of patience. You, you know, I know that. Listen, have you read the rest of this book and seen the actions of people in it? Like, there's some brutal stuff in here, right? Like, like you go to, like, I'll give you an example, okay? Like, there's a story in Judges 19. In Judges 19, where there's a woman, like, a, a, a mob of what the, the book of Judges describes as, as wicked men of the city descend on this woman and rape her to death. 
to death. And then her husband's response is he cuts up her body into pieces and mails them around the city as a political statement. I mean, like disgusting, brutal, bloody, like repugnant things. And yet at no point in a story like that does it go, and God looked at humanity and regretted that he had made them. Like, what does it take? Like, how bad do things have to be that it breaks the heart of God in such an extreme manner? And what we find in the story is that, okay, like the, the, Moses, who's the author of Genesis, like his description is, okay, that, that all the intentions of the heart, that all the, the things in the mind had turned towards wickedness and sin. I mean, we're talking about a state of evil that most of us cannot fathom and here's why that's important okay because many of us when we look at the sort of disdaining view of god and we go like oh man he uh, like i can't believe he would do that yet many of us if we witnessed less atrocities we would say i hope god judges that i hope god gets rid of it i hope god you know brings down that government brings down that ruler you know, like you know, puts so and so in jail does this or does that and so can we just maybe give god a little bit of slack that maybe things are really 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 bad and that he's not itching to do it but he's seeing it, and he's going, I, there's not another way. And so he says, all right, he says I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth this human race that I've created. And, and the phrase here that we translate as, as, as wipe, maybe your translation says blot out, blot out. It's the Hebrew word makah. Now, here's a neat thing about this word. Usually, it's described um, to talk about, like, if you're a reader talk like, like God's book of life and someone's name being blotted out of it, it's this idea of like so thoroughly scrubbing someone from it that the entire, even like the memory of them will be gone. Another way that like Makkah is used in, in the scriptures, in, uh, in 2 Kings 21 verse 13, there's a point where um, God is talking about the sins of the people and, and he has a guy like hold up a plate. He goes, this, this, is, this is how how thoroughly I'm going to cleanse things. So she's like, hold up this plate and like wash the plate, like wash the top. But then when you're done with that, flip it over and wash the other side as well. That's sort of just wiping away in that heavy of a degree. And that's what he's saying right here. Listen, I'm going to scrub all of it, all of it. And so I'm going I'm to blot out uh, and then the people and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret, I regret that I've made them. But look at this next part. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the very first thing we're going to learn about Noah. Before he does anything, before he's righteous, before he's faithful, the very first thing that we learn, okay, why is everything going to happen for Noah? Because he's found favor in the eyes of God. Which means, like, for, for reasons that are unknown, God has looked upon Noah and his life and is going to respond to him in a way of mercy and grace and compassion. Now, something just to note about the story, and we're going to see this repeat throughout it, is that the story very much is meant to remind us of the fall narrative and the creation story. That is to say that everything that happens in it is basically a reset for creation. And our eyes are meant to look back and be reminded of Adam and Eve and the fall. So for instance, um, you may remember if, if you were here in week two when we looked at the curse of sin, when it sort of seeps into everything and, and what, what, what happens to Adam, well, it talks about how like, he'll never find rest, right? Like he'll, he'll work the earth for the rest of his life and by the sweat of his brow, he'll collect his food from the dirt and then he'll just return to dust. Remember this whole idea of like you'll never have rest. Okay, well, here's the thing. Noah, you know what, you know what the name Noah means? Comfort comfort it, it, it means like 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 a reprieval or a relaxation a rest from things 
Okay, do you remember how, do you remember how when the creation story starts, before anything comes forward, what, do you remember what the Spirit of God is doing? How he's hovering over the surface of the waters? Okay, well, when we find this creation reset, what we're, what we're going to see, water everywhere again, and life is going to come out of it. And it's going to get really, really explicit as we go forward. And so we see Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man blameless among the people of his time. So we're comparing Noah with everybody else around him. Noah's doing a lot better than, than the, the wickedness of heart that's there. And he walked faithfully with God. Verse 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And again, this is meant to take us back to remembering the Adam and Eve story. You know how that? Watch this. So what do we learn about, okay, how many, how many sons do Adam and Eve have? If you remember, no, three. It was three. They had Cain, Abel, and then after that, they had Seth. Okay? Okay, what do we see right here? How many sons does Noah have? Three. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is meant to start to remind us of the beginning. Now, verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. And look at this description. It's not just something like like little petty things. It was full of violence. And this word that we translate as corrupt, um, literally, you know what it means? Ruined. Ruined. So, like, you know, if you were to have like a, a canvas, right? You know, like a beautiful painting, and somebody just chucked a gallon of paint on it, you would look at that and you're like, "That's ruined." Like it was a good thing. It's been just so damaged, and, and that's the same kind of thought here with the earth. It's been just absolutely ruined. Like this good, beautiful thing that God has created has been just crushed, and like, like a flower, it's been, it's been like, like sort of crushed in somebody's hand. It's been willowed up. Like it's, it's the earth has been ruined. It's not what God created it to be. In verse 12, and God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted, ruined their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And again, this is different from ancient Near Eastern flood myths where it's all about the gods, like you know, people are too loud or whatever. No, this is, all right, my creation has been ruined People have so rebelled that they've broken all of it, and they're not turning from any of it. They're continuing to persist in this, like, this life that they're living of absolute decadence and destruction and violence. And so I'm, I'm going to wipe it away. No, okay. He says, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And now I'm going to paraphrase the rest here because it's, it's a few chapters long. So here's what happens, okay? So God tells Noah, build an ark. All right, and it gives them these really, really uh, intricate details. And so right, I'm going to make the animals come to you. You're going to load them two by two. You know the story, right? They get on the ark. He seals the ark shut, and then the rains come, right? And it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and the earth fills and it floods, and the, and the ark lifts off the ground, and then everybody drowns, and everything is, is blotted out. Makkah. And then the ark is adrift on the, on the open sea for 150 days. 150 days, they're just out there. And 150 days, they're, they're locked in this ark and they, and they have no idea if the waters will ever receive. But then they start to a little bit and the ark lands on the top of a mountain. And then more time passes. So look at this, uh, Genesis 8, verse 6. And after 40 days, Noah opened a window that he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. So he releases this raven to try and find land. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. So basically, Noah opens 
uh, the window, let the raven out. Basically, okay, if, if it finds like a tree or land or whatever, we'll know it's safe to come out. So he, he releases the raven, it goes out, in their moment of need, it comes back, it doesn't come through for them. And every Baltimore fan in the room is like, yeah, that sounds about right. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, said the Falcon fan, that's fair. All right, um, but look, here's what happens next. And then he sent a dove to see if water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could not, or could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. And he reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. And he waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. So the dove story is a little bit longer, but what we're finding is like the symbol of the ark that basically like wherever the dove lands, there is life, right? And so it comes back to Noah because that's the only place where it can survive. And so now he releases it again. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, verse 11, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And so uh, then Noah knew that water had receded from the earth. And so the dove comes back. It's got the belief in hand. Okay, it's safe to go. Now, here's something just interesting, a little, little, little Bible fun thing for you. How many of you remember the story of Jesus' baptism later in the New Testament? Remember, like, Jesus goes in, in the water, right? Comes up, like, the voice from heaven thunders. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you remember, you remember it says, like, the Holy Spirit descended onto Jesus in the form of a dove. Up. You, you know what? Basically, it, that language is meant to remind us of this story. That, okay, just as the only salvation and life could be found on that land that the dove found. Okay, now the dove is landing on Jesus, and he's the only place we're going to find life. Just like okay, in the midst of the waters, just in the midst of the waters, like with, like waters surrounding it. Um, there's there's only like the certain land where the dove goes. Okay, in the same way, Jesus is surrounded by water, and it lands on him. Meaning he, he's the way that you're going to find life in the waters of this world. This is, by the way, fun fact for you, why our church is called Solid Ground. Because Jesus is our solid ground. He is, he is the one in whom we find life in the midst of the torrents and rains and flood of this life. Only him. Only him. And by the way, I want you to know that today. For how many persons here today, like you are trying to pacify yourself in every which way that you can because you're just so bored in this life and you're hoping you'll find that inclination of your heart, right? So maybe if I just get that new boyfriend, maybe if I just get that new pill, maybe if I just get that new job, then finally my heart will be satisfied. And I want you to understand you will only find life in Christ because he is the only solid ground you can stand on. And I hope you know him today. So what we find is okay, the dove comes down and the waters recede, just like at the beginning, how God creates land. Now watch this. Okay, I mean, it gets really, really, I mean, it cannot get more explicit that this is a repeat of creation. Remember the, remember the commission of God to Adam and Eve at the beginning with the be fruitful, multiply? Remember that? Okay, watch this. Genesis 9, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. It's the same commission. The, like the exact same thing. What he, what he gave our first parents, he gives them now, Okay. And the fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky and every creature that moves along the ground and on the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. So just like with Adam and Eve, the idea of like rule over the animals, right? Here it is with Noah, okay? Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just, so take that, vegans. Um, just as I gave, <laughs> it's a joke, it's just a joke. 
Please don't email me. Okay. Um, look. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Just as when God created the earth, he gave it to our first parents. Now he gives it to Noah and his sons. So if you're taking notes, if you want to understand like the message of the story, because how many of us, we know the details of the flood story, but we don't understand the point. Here's the point, okay? The flood, if you're taking notes, write this down. The flood was a creation reset. That's why it's there. That basically what, like, what, what we're about to see here in Genesis is a really pivotal moment. Because many of us will think, okay, like, if I just choose well enough, then God will accept me. But what we're about to discover is it's not as easy as that. So basically what God does is he starts the whole thing over again. So like, there have been creation. It's been infected. It's been broken. So now he's taking it all back to the beginning, okay? And just as you had Adam and Eve and there was no sin, right, so now God's bringing forth this blameless guy. And so you'll think maybe now, now that we get the right guy in power, maybe now if we give the commission to the right guy, then everything Everything will go well and all of creation will be as it should be. But we're about to discover that's not the case. In fact, this thing is worse than we thought. That it's not as simple as a tree like in a garden, but in fact, there's been something that we've been infected with. And it's part of all of us now. It's not as simple as just, okay, I'll just choose the right stuff all the time. There's something in us now. And it doesn't matter who's on the earth. Every single person has contracted this virus. And we'll see it with Noah. As we watch him repeat the exact same fate of Adam and Eve. Okay, so God gives him this commission. This is what you are to do. And here's the very next thing that Noah does in the text. Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank of some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Righteous Noah. So the very, like the, I mean, just think about it. the very next thing that Noah does being handed creation by God is get sauced. And by the way, this tells us something that this isn't as simple as, as like little tiny choices. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not. It takes a while to grow things. So it's not like Noah was just passing a liquor store. It's like, well, maybe, maybe I'm feeling tempted. Like he had to like methodically grow the grapes. <laughs> All right, and then make the wine to get hammered by. I mean, you talk about this like like long time stewing plan, but why is it there? It's there because he's been infected by something. And his sin is meant to parallel. We're meant to see that it's just like Adam and Eve. So, okay, remember what happens to Adam and Eve? They partake of the fruit in the garden and they end up naked and ashamed. Okay, Noah partakes of the fruit in a garden he planted and ends up naked and ashamed. It's made to go, make us go, oh, things aren't right. And like, what hope do we have? Because all of this has been infected. And next week we'll see it reach its absolute pinnacle with the Tower of Babel. But like now we're beginning to understand it. it's not as simple as the right people with the right choices, okay? And, and, and let's also understand something else. And I, I, just, I need somebody to hear this today, okay? Some of you, you have believed about yourself that God wants nothing to do with you and that God is constantly disapproving of you. And you believe that because you've been taught this weird version of Christianity that says God is after your performance. So let's understand some things that typically the people that God uses would make Christians blush. Okay, so, so for instance, Noah has a booze problem. I mean, like, if the very first thing that he does when he gets off the boat is like, I need a drink. Like, and, I, I mean, yeah, if you see the world destroyed, you might say that too. But look, um, 
but, 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 who, but that's the type of guy that God uses. Do you understand? Like typically, if you've got it all together, you're probably not somebody who's going to see the, the powerful hand of God. That's what Pharisees do. But no, 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 Jesus' disciples, like, like you talk about Peter, who's so arrogant, he tells Jesus that he's wrong. You know, you, you read about David, who's got a lust problem. You could read about Abraham, and we'll, we'll spend some time on Abraham, who's got real issues with trusting God. You, you, I mean, just every, like when you go through the scriptures, understand something, that typically the people that God uses are those that are really, really jacked up. And I got good news for you. I'm willing to bet you fit within that camp too. Which means you're exactly where you should be and that you can absolutely experience the faithful hand of forgiveness and grace and power because God is interested in glorifying himself through you, not you through him. And there's something about, like when, when the Lord just kind of intervenes and he uses like the, like the, the most just radically <laughs> departing of, you know, good boy, good girl, Christian stereotypes, there, there's just something about it that people look at that and they go like, nobody but God could do that. Don't discount your past. Don't discount your testimony. Why did I start you off there? Why did I start you remembering these things? Because they're part of how God is going to use you. And know that. You know, your, past, your past is not a thing for you to try and pretend never happened. No, no, no. Your scars point to what God can do in your life. But, let's under, but like to understand that a little bit, um, let's recognize something. Just like as, as, as Noah returns back to uh, his tree, I do think it, it's good for us, to, as we want to pursue Jesus, to be aware of something. And so let me just ask you a question. Just, okay, what's your tree? What's your tree? What's that thing? And everybody's got one, or two, or, or 20. Like everybody's got that thing where like, no matter how hard you try, you always just default back to that struggle. Do you know what I'm talking about? I said, for Noah, it's alcohol, like clearly. And maybe that's for you. Like, like you, you just you, you find yourself being drawn to the bottle, or you, hey, you, you find yourself being drawn to the social scene. Because you think if you're sober, nobody will like you. You think you're funner, you're more fun when you're drunk. You're not. You're good enough just as you are. But maybe that's your tree. Maybe, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something else. That maybe for you, like, it, it's, it's control. You have to be in charge of everything that you do. Maybe your tree is anger or bitterness or fault finding. You, like your tree is division. You, you look for reasons to be upset with people. Maybe your tree is sex or lust. And you find yourself just drawn to really bad choices with that. Maybe, maybe your tree is greed. And you're never secure unless you've got enough in the account. I mean, I don't know what you should, but everybody's got one. And understand something, okay? Because here's what many of us would think. We would think that God will accept me once I chop down the tree. But realize that God saved Noah while that was still in his heart. God gave him the commission knowing what he would do. And God entrusted all of it to him, as broken as he was. Do you remember how this whole story started? It didn't start with Noah was so good that God said, I need to save him. Genesis 6 says, here's how Noah was introduced. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
that, that's where he comes in. And yeah, there are actions later on. And, and yeah, when it comes down to it, he made the right choice. He stepped out in faith. But understand something, just as Noah did not have the power to save himself, he had to rest on God's faithfulness in the ark. You have no power to save yourself either. And the only thing that you can do is rest in the faithfulness of God and the cross of Christ. That's what will save you. Him and him alone. That's what will bring forgiveness to you. Him and him alone. God intervened. I mean, like, what would Noah have done? <laughs> oh, it's kind of cloudy. I guess I should build an ark to put in every animal ever. No, it was the voice of God. It was the faithfulness of God. And you can know that too. You can know his forgiveness too. You can know his salvation too. You can know being saved from yourself and your sin. And it's a free gift of God. So today, if you would say, you want to begin a relationship with him, if you want him to save you from you, if you want him to save you from death, eternal death, it can happen. And all you got to do is ask. So every head bowed, every eye closed, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. If you'd, like to, if you'd like to be saved through Christ today, here's what we're going to pray. For the first time or the hundredth time. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I've messed up. But I believe that you sent Jesus to take away my sin. To die for me in my place. And I believe you raised him from the dead so that I can have a new life with you. So God, I'm asking you, please save me. Please wipe away my sin. Please come into my life and show me how I can live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you decided to follow Jesus today, let us help you take your first steps in faith. Visit us on the web at solidground.church slash first steps. There you'll find free resources and videos to help you take your first steps in your relationship with Jesus. Thanks so much for tuning in and we look forward to seeing you next week.